Thank you, Dave. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm all right with Mike? All right. We've been in the book of Philippians for a little bit on and off this last month or so. We had uh, Walter Roder gave us a good opening of, for the new year from uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Our resolutions for the new year and a lifetime of goal to press on, forgetting what lies behind and reaching for what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Last week, Steve Massaro gave a wonderful message on his part three of the spiritual maturity and stability from Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine. If you missed it, I highly recommend you going to the uh, newvillagechurch.net website and listening to it. You'll be blessed if you missed it. Now, today we will start a series of messages from the book of Philippians. Uh, myself and the elders will be picking it up along with Dave. And uh, during this time, we'll also have guest speakers every now and then coming in from the outside of our church to minister to us here. And again, we look forward to seeing Walter up here in the pulpit again and some others from the congregation uh, here as well. Uh, before I get started into the lesson today, I would like to just uh, go and again go boldly before the throne of grace and to ask God to help us to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive what we would have us glean from his word today if we could. Let's pray. Father God, you are the source of all joy. Joy that endures, joy that is everlasting. And no matter what the world around us throws at us, Father, your joy is always there. Help us to grasp this joy by realizing our blessed position in Christ. Speak to us through the pages of the scripture. Show us what we have, what we possess as Christian believers in our everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians, here's an introduction to a book of joy. What's in the name? Philippians, obviously, are a group of people from the city of Philippi. This was the first town in the Greek province of Macedonia where Paul established a church. This was the first church Paul founded, actually, in Europe. This occurred on his second missionary journey. Now, the city received its name from Philip II, which was the Alexander, the father of Alexander the Great. It became part of the Roman province of Macedonia in the second century BC. And around 42 BC, it became actually a Roman colony, granting to its citizens the same rights as other Italian cities. And this included Roman law being there and granting the citizens uh, the same rights uh, as Roman citizens in, in Rome. Uh, many of the Roman soldiers uh, were either settling there or transplanted there to this area. The people used Latin as their main language here, the official language, and they adopted many of the Roman customs of the day. These people in the city prided themselves on being citizens of Rome. It's important status for them. And this topic of citizenship is one that Paul addresses later on in this letter, and we'll see this in a later study. Now the author of the book is Paul the Apostle. 
when and when it was where and when it was written is traditionally most widely accepted that the it was written along with the other prison epistles that of Ephesians, Colossians and Philemon. And this was during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. It's around 60 to 62 AD. And this is evident from some of the phrases he uses in the book itself, talking about the palace guard in the first chapter and the phrase the saints of Caesar household later on in the fourth chapter. Now Acts chapter 16, we have recorded a large amount of Paul's activity in Philippi. And if you'll turn to actually Acts chapter 16, we'll start off a little bit by looking at some of it from verses 6 on and just run through some of the things of his ministry that happened to his ministry there. Verse 6, this will be on page uh, 1318 of your pew Bible, if you have a pew Bible there, if not, your own Bible. Verse 6 tells us that Paul's original plan was not actually to go to Philippi, but he was actually preaching in Asia and wanted to preach a little more there. But the doors are being shut to him there. And actually what happens is he was uh, ending up in this area called uh, Troas. And while he was there in Troas, Acts 69 tells us that during the night he has a vision. And this vision is one of a Macedonian man. And this man is pleading to him, come and help us. Come and help us. Now Luke, the author of Acts, at this point writes in verse 10 here, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, according, uh, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And I highlighted the words we and us, because this seems to be the part in Acts where Luke joins both Paul and Silas and Timothy to continue on this journey, uh, a missionary journey. So they set sail, and they travel there by sea and also by land, and they end up in Philippi. Now, after several days of being there, it happens to be indicating here in verse 13 that on the Sabbath, they go outside the city gate to where the river is, expecting to find a place of prayer. So this is the Jewish Sabbath we're talking about. Now, there does not appear to be a very large Jewish population in this Greek city. So there was no Jewish synagogue there. And so the place where they would go to pray would be by the riverside. And this would be for the ritual washings and stuff that would occur for, for their worship there. And so being there, they sit down with a group of women who happened to be in this area, one of which was Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She's described as a seller of purple cloth and a worshiper of God. Now the Lord opens her heart to respond to the gospel and her and her family appear to be saved and they were what? Baptized. And she opens her house to them, compelling them to stay there. And that's what the group of uh, missionaries did here, Paul and his Silas. Now there is a staying there sometime later, verse 16 through 24 states, on the way to the place of prayer, a demon-possessed slave girl who predicted the future was a source of much gain for her owners. She followed them around shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days, the scripture says. Seems to the point that it almost annoyed Paul. And Paul just about 
The way it's written, it almost sounds like he turns around and casts the demon out of her in verse 18. Now the owners at this point, realizing that their hope of gain, of making money from her, her, uh, her gift there, her demonic gift, they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace and into the magistrates that were there. Now they accused them of throwing the city up into an uproar, advocating customs opposed by Roman customs. Verse 22 states also that the crowd joined against the attacks of Paul and Silas. They were beaten with rods. They were stripped. And after they were severely flogged, they threw them into prison. Now the jailer in charge was given special orders here, basically to guard them very carefully. Verse 24. So he ends up taking them and putting them in the inner cell of the prison and he fastens their feet in stocks, it says. Now one of the commentaries on this, these sets of stocks indicates that these are not just used to secure prisoners, but they're almost a form of punishment. It would be a long log that was like squared off and it was split in two and they drilled holes to hold the ankles and then they closed it back up. Now a prisoner left in this position for any length of time, obviously he can't move around. His ankles are fastened in this position, could be for days. They're seated, unable to move, unable to move their legs, and probably not even able to sleep. And this is where Paul and Silas were put. So what do we see Paul and Silas doing at this time? It says it was about midnight. Paul and Silas not sleeping. They're holding a two-person prayer meeting basically with praises and singing praises and hymns on, unto, unto God. Not angry with God, but praising Him in the midst of their circumstances. Praising Him in the midst of their hardships and torture. I pray that's not a new idea for us. If it is, I pray that we try it. Praise God in the middle of your problems. Praise Him when you're beaten down and you are in tears. When you can't even sleep. That take time, that, that time, and praise Him. Why? Because He's sovereign. He's a sovereign God. And He's there with you. He's there with you during those troubles, during those times. Verse 25 says, And the other prisoners were listening to them. What a testimony. In the midst of what they saw, these beaten up men coming in, being put in the inner, inner cell, and again, probably pulverized, they're singing praises unto their God. What a testimony. What a witness. And for us too, when we're going through hard times, to praise God through them. Praise God through them. And look what happens next. Suddenly, a violent earthquake shakes the foundations on this prison. All the doors of this prison fly open all at once, the scripture says. All of them, all at once. And everyone's chains came loose. Not just Paul and Silas. Not just Paul and Silas' cell. 
all of them came loose. Now the sleeping jailer was woken by the earthquake. He sees all the doors open and he thinks, this is it for me, I'm going to kill myself. My responsibilities, what has been laid upon me, uh, it's, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to die. So what does he do? He goes to kill himself. Now again, with Roman law at that time, a guard who was in charge of prisoners, if he allowed uh, a prisoner to escape, he was actually liable for their penalty. And perhaps someone in his jail was on death row, I don't know. But this, he's about to kill himself, and what happens? He hears Paul and Silas shout to him, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. So the jailer gets lighter, a torch, whatever, and he rushes over and he fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He brings them out and he asks them a question. A question I know we all pray that our friends and our relatives ask us maybe someday. What must I do to be saved? You have the answer in Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now the Philippian jailer and his family understand we're saved. In that very hour, he takes them out, he washes them up, he wounds, he takes care of their wounds and him and his household were baptized. That's a nightly baptism. That was done that very hour. That was that night. The jailer brings him home. He feeds him. And he's filled with joy. Because he had come to believe in God. Him and his household, it says. Verse 35 says, Then the magistrates somehow now realize that they made a mistake here. They realized by beating Paul and Silas, they were beating Roman citizens. And now at this point, they, they want him out of the city. They want him to leave. Now Paul insists that, you know, well, you threw us in here in public. Come here and take us out of here in public and, and remedy the situation. But these Ro being a Roman citizen, they had certain rights, including a public hearing, which apparently was denied them. And no Roman citizen was to be scourged like they were. So verse 40 tells us that after Paul and Silas come out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met other brothers and sisters and, in, and they encouraged them. And basically this is the beginning of the church of Philippi. In Paul in one of his other letters in 2 Corinthians 8 he talks about, he describes this area and, and the people of Macedonia churches and he says, in the midst of a very severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they have gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. This church was a giving church. This church was a caring church. In this letter, the Philippian church supported Paul and sent him contributions while he was in this Roman prison. They also sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul there. Now, Epaphroditus got seriously ill and almost died. 
And Paul sends him back to Philippi with this letter. Letter to the Philippians. And we understand later on, after Paul's released from this imprisonment, he went and visited this church again on his third missionary journey. This letter itself now, the purpose, if we broke down the letter, these four chapters, into what was the, why was Paul writing this epistle? And these are not in order, but I listed them one through five. The first one I said is to, to give thanks to give thanks for a gift. Find that in chapter 4, verses 10 and on. So Paul writes this letter to give thanks. Number two, he wants to let the Philippians church know why he's sending Epaphroditus back to them. So his explanation why this man who came to minister to him, why he's sending him back. So that explanation is in, is in there. So why he was sending Epaphroditus back. Thirdly, he says... He wants to let them know how he's doing, how he's doing in prison. Fourth, it is actually to exhort unity in the church. There was a few squabbles going on. So he's trying to exhort them to unity. And number five, basically, it talks about to warn against false teachers. Warn against false teachers. Now, just some general observations this being a practical letter to the Philippian church, there's really no mentions of any Old Testament scriptures in it. There's no quotes from the Old Testament to be found in it. And it's likely that the majority of the congregation were Gentiles that he's sending this letter to. This letter was one of encouragement and warning, as I said before. And there's really no mention of a specific theological issue there was an error with them or a moral problem there. There was, again, uh, he addresses the uh, kind of squirmish between a couple, but he does not actually talk specifically about any theological or moral problem. If you have your Bible with you or if you take notes, I would encourage you when we go through this study, either circle or however you want to do it, the words joy and the word rejoice. As we work our way through the study, you'll find that the, the Greek word for joy, rejoice, is used over a dozen times throughout the book. And in doing so, remember where Paul is when he's writing this. He's writing this letter. He's talking about joy. He's emphasizing joy to them while he's in prison for about two years. Now again, he was allowed to receive visitors there. And he had an opportunity to preach, especially those who he was bound to or who were guarding him. They were a captive audience for him to preach to. They weren't going anywhere. And also as we look at this book, I'd like to have us think about the difference between happiness and joy. Because there's a big distinction, I believe, between the two. I'd say happiness is something that isn't permanent, it's fleeting, it changes. It's, it's something that is dependent upon circumstances. And let's face it, our circumstances change. They're never the same, and a lot of times we don't have no control over the circumstances that we're in. Whereas joy, true joy, is something that doesn't change. It never changes because we have this security. 
security in the present, security in the future, whatever the conditions are, knowing that God is totally sovereign and that He is in control of every event, every event of our lives. And He's in control for our good. It seems like a problem at the time, but God is using it for our good and for His glory. Remember, He is there with us through these trials, through these tribulations, through these problems. But we have that joy. Our joy is in Christ, knowing Him and having Him. If we can, let's turn to where I'm supposed to be getting to today, which will be uh, Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to cover verses 1 through 5 rather quickly. If you're using a pew Bible, that should be on page 1395. So that's Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And let me read it for you now. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God for all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in, in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul in verse 1 starts off by calling himself what? This is a bond servant. A bond servant. A slave. Now remember who Paul was. What credentials he had. His personal credentials. He talks about this a little bit in Philippians 3. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a, mo- a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, Paul says circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul had quite a human resume. He was in the eyes of his peers, the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the Hebrew of Hebrews, respected by all. All of which he forsook to put on the righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith, and become a slave. A bond servant of Christ. The word doulos, the Greek word doulos there, is describing a person, a slave, who was owned by someone else subservient to that person and dependent upon that person. I'm going to repeat that. One who is owned by someone else, subservient to that person and dependent upon that person. Paul used this term in three of his letters to start them with. Romans, this here in Philippians and also in Titus, a bondservant of Christ. Now an Old Testament slave who refused the opportunity for freedom who was willing to stay and serve his master 
The Old Testament law provided a section for this in, in, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 through 6. It states this, But if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master will bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to his door or doorpost, and he'll take an awl, a sharp piercing awl, right, and put his ear there and pierce his ear with the awl, probably to the door or doorpost, and he shall serve him permanently. Being a bondservant of Christ is a service done not out of compulsion. It's not a negative idea. It's not a lonely or demeaning one as you would think of a slave. It is rather a privilege. One down out of love. I love my master. For a believer who is a servant of Jesus, this is a willing, determined, and devoted lifelong service out of love. Verse 1 continues, To all the saints in Christ, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, to all the saints, I'm going to repeat something that you probably all know, but what is a saint? One who is set apart. In this case, the believers at Philippi are not a special higher-ranking religious person set apart because of some special deed or some accomplishment. Old Testament and New Testament saints alike were saints that were set apart. Apart from sin unto God. All believers are saints. Not because they are righteous unto themselves, because the Jesus' righteousness was imputed to them by faith. Continuing, to all the saints in Christ. This describes the Philippians believers here, union with Christ Jesus. His union in his death. Union in his resurrection. They're new people in Christ. We are in Christ this is our joy. We are in Christ Jesus, acceptable unto God. Including the overseers and deacons. Again, here we're talking about those who are leaders in the church, overseers being either the elders, it's an office position. There are pastors, there are shepherds, there are the pastor teachers or bishops. And we see the qualifications for them set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He talks about, and the deacons, and that word literally means those who serve. They are to meet the same high moral and, and spiritual standards, but they are leaders with roles primarily ones that are of practical service in the church. So this is who Paul is writing to, and he says unto them, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this greeting in a number of times to his other, in the other letters to the churches, in Romans and in Corinthians twice, in Ephesians, Colossians, and, and Thessalonians. He's using what this, this, this saving, eternal, unmerited favor of grace and the everlasting peace that come 
from, if you notice the word from, the same source. Grace and peace from. That being from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A single source. Here again the emphasis is on the oneness of the Father and the Son. The source. And basically this is our introduction to the reason and the source of joy throughout this letter. Verse 3 starts off and he says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. On a practical note, isn't it nice to be remembered by people? You know, you go back to a place, whether it's a vacation spot or maybe a business or these days more often than not a doctor's office. And the people there remember who you are. Some of them call out your name before you even get to sign in. Carol and I go to a certain restaurant probably more times than we should, but one of the waitresses there, when she sees us, she starts out our order by asking a question and then answers it. She looks at my wife and she says, raspberry iced tea, raspberry iced tea and for myself, Coke Zero. And that's usually what it is. It's nice to be remembered by people. Here Paul is letting the brothers and sisters in Christ, whom he probably hasn't seen for a while, know that he was overflowing with joy and thanks in remembering them. In remembering them. This gratitude permeates Paul's letters. He has a heartfelt affection for this church. He's not thinking while he's writing about his present circumstances, but he's thinking about these people who are so faithful to him, these Philippian believers. I thank God, my God, in all remembrance of you. He says in verse 7 later on, which we're not covering today, he says, I have you in my heart. I long for you. Paul loved this church and was thankful to God for them. When remembering this church, <coughs> Paul may have thought back on his first visit there. That's one reason why I went through the little bit of, of Acts. Probably thinks back on some of the events that happened when he first was in Philippi. He might have thought back of Lydia and her household. Maybe her kids, husband, whatever. He thinks back of the jailer and his household and the baptisms. He thinks back maybe on that slave girl who the demon was cast out of. Perhaps maybe she was even saved and maybe became part of this church. And I'll say the same thing about those prisoners that saw and witnessed what went on in that jail. Perhaps they may have come to know the Lord also and were part of this church maybe. We must remember when Paul's writing this letter, he's writing it to a church, but the church is made up of people. Individuals, it's not mortar and brick, but as Peter says, living stones. Paul addresses many of these people by name in this letter. It's a personal letter, and he's involved, loving, and longing for them. 
And in praying, continuing this verse here, it says, verse 4 says, Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. You want to cheer somebody up? Pray for them. And let them know. Let them know you're praying for them. Pray specifically. Pray in detail if you can. Telling them. Let them know you care. Maybe drop a note to them. When we're praying for them and telling them, it lets them know that you care and it shows you care. But in doing so, it helps us to care more. God uses that somehow in our lives to make us care more. Now I can appreciate so many people here as mentioned even this week that they were praying for me. And I appreciate that. And I know that they care for me through that. I'm praying for you, brother. That's great, great to hear. You want to cheer yourself up, pray for somebody else. Pray for somebody. Interceding on the behalf of others is, is joyful for believers. Those who are obedient to the Holy Spirit will delight in praying for others on their behalf. It puts spiritual glasses on oneself when we do this. We realize how good we have it sometimes. We realize how God has blessed us and others. We tend to see God's blessings clearer. And then, when we see God's answers to those prayers, we're blessed also. We're blessed to have been part of that answer. It's a blessing to pray for others. I think this Philippian church here was thrilled to know Paul was grateful for them, thanking God for them, and praying for them. And it was always offering prayer. Always. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 states, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Young person asks you what, what they don't know God's will for their lives. Give them this verse, man. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Acts 1.14 also says, These which are of one mind continually devoted themselves to prayer. The early church continually devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer. Pray always. Pray. Always praying. Pray, offering prayer with joy. Pray with joy. Our prayers should be joyful. Always offering prayer with joy. And every prayer for you all is what Paul states here. We see Paul is praying for them with joy. The Philippian church, when he's praying now, he's not focusing on himself. He's focusing on others. 
their circumstances, their poverty and suffering, their hardships and pain. These are the center of his concerns. And this is how we should pray also. Faithful intercessors are more concerned about the needs of others than themselves, especially for others' spiritual welfare. We should be concerned more for others in our prayers. Verse 5 says this, in view, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, one of Paul's reasons for being so thankful, so joyful, is the fact that this church in Philippi was participating in the work of the gospel from the beginning and still going on strong. This was a sense of joy for Paul. Now the word participation here is that word which we've heard many times before is koinia. We usually use it for fellowship. And it means fellowship. Being in communion with. Sharing in. Contributing to. This church here partnered with Paul in the spread of the gospel. The participation, this fellowship, this partnership in the gospel was a source of great joy to Paul here. Now this is the beginning of the letter. I'm going to end it here at verse 5, but this introduction to the book of joy, please take time out. Maybe read through it, the book if you can, read through at least the first chapter and get ready for next week. And uh, prepare our hearts to see what God has for us throughout it. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you bless this time we have spent in your word this morning. Give us a deeper understanding to what Paul was saying to this beloved church and help us to apply these words to our lives in this, your church. Bless us as we go forth today, Father, into the mission field around us. We pray that you'll give each one of us the words and the things to say to our neighbors, our friends, Lord. Uh, and again, Lord, help us, Father, to be reminded of the fact that our joy is not in the circumstances we are in, but it's in the joy of knowing you and being in Christ Jesus. Amen.